Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club event. I'm Arlie Hochschild, Professor Emerita of Sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. We would like to thank the club's Humanities Forum for supporting today's program. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce Bob Kuttner. Bob is an award-winning journalist and Ida and Meyer Kirsten Chair of Brandeis University. He teaches at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management, co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect, and he's the founder of the Economic Policy Institute. He is the author of 13 books, and let me name uh, just a few. Obama's Challenge, America's Economic Crisis and the Power of the Transformative Presidency, a New York Times bestseller. Everything for Sale, that is my go-to book, personally. My God book gives you a real macro picture of what's happening to capitalism and government. The Squandering of America, The Life of the Party, The Revolt of the Haves, and many others. So today we're talking about going big, and he really is drawing a parallel uh, between uh, the situation faced by Biden and by uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, both taking the reins of a government at the crossroads, with big partisan divides, and it offers a very thoughtful look at what we can do. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce Bob Kuttner. You know, at the time I wrote this book, it was a much less contrarian book than it appears to be now. Uh, the message now is that even though everybody seems to think that the Democrats are headed for a historic wipeout this November, uh, the hopeful message is it doesn't have to be that way. And um, the fact is that um, Biden, for his first six months, uh, was a very effective president. He was uh, net positive in the approval ratings. He got Congress to pass a $1.9 trillion bill, which included some things that had eluded progressives forever, like a universal child tax credit, which is really a universal basic income for parents. Uh, Joe Manchin was still part of the team. He got all of his nominees uh, confirmed. And then uh, luck deserted him. He, we had the supply chain catastrophe, not his fault, but it came home to roost on his watch. We had COVID upsurges. And then on top of that, uh, we had, of course, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And then Biden gets blamed for the inflation. And Biden also gets blamed for looking like a president who can't govern even though the pieces of his program are extremely popular. So point one, Biden was absolutely right to go big. Uh, the country needed it. His party needed it. And I think the other main point of the book is that the Democrats, period, in the neoliberal wilderness, where they stopped acting as the party of ordinary working people, was politically catastrophic. And uh, if we can get you back on audio... I have a question for you, Arlie. I have imagined a kind of notional dialogue between your path-breaking book, Strangers in Their Own Land, and my book, Going Big. 
And I guess your point in that book was that people in Louisiana, in this case, who were really getting the short end of the stick economically, found it much easier to blame liberals than to blame corporations. So my question is, um, given the fact that the Democratic Party became the party of racial justice, became the party of environmentalism, uh, became the party of cultural progressivism, LGBTQ rights, uh, regulation of the environment. Uh, was there any way Democrats could have regained the affections of the people you wrote about, who at the time you wrote that book were really Tea Partiers, but became the Trump base? And had Democrats not deserted FDR kind of economic populism, uh, would we have had a prayer of regaining the affections of the people you spent uh, so much time with interviewing? And could we get those people back if we turned away from neoliberalism and uh, embraced once again the kind of economic populism that made Roosevelt such a beloved and effective president? So I hope you could hear that, and I hope you can respond to it. So... Uh... Yes, I think that um, the people that I came to know um, in uh, Louisiana and the people that I'm coming to know now in Kentucky for my new uh, project um, definitely uh, are all remember their fathers or grandfathers who were Democrats. And uh, especially in Kentucky with uh, uh, the um, Miners Union, um, UMA, and um, they have fond feelings, actually, for what the Democratic Party used to represent. And I think it very much corresponds with what I hear as a main message of your book, that uh, the Democratic Party started out in FDR uh, on the right track, but that it got um, taken over by uh, by Democrats who weren't really Democrats and who, in fact, were pro-business and really pursuing uh, that agenda and the ideology that hides, disguises that agenda. That's what you've said, that uh, President Carter, President Clinton, while wonderful in other ways, actually um, pursued uh, policies that made the the blue-collar America sink. If we said, and this is my rendition of your theory, (laughs) so let's see if it's right, that around 1970, uh, you know, capitalism uh, went off on its own and uh, it uh, offshored, it it left town and it made winners of, of globalization and losers. And what we're seeing now is that the elite of the losers are taking us to the extreme right wing. And what I hear you saying is that actually uh, the Democrats 
went along with the agenda of the winners and have actually um, exacerbated the great gap, class gap, that uh, is driving people away from the Democratic Party now. Two, two embellishments. Um, I think um, Clinton was the worst uh, of, of those three uh, in that he wholeheartedly embraced uh, neoliberalism. He embraced deregulation of finance on terms that benefited Wall Street. Uh, he embraced uh, the corporate version of globalism. And if you look at the Hillary Clinton variant, Hillary tried to make up for the fact that she was very close to Wall Street, taking $500,000 speaking fees uh, from Wall Street investment bankers while she was running for president as a Democrat. And she tried to make up for the fact that she was going uh, right on economic issues by going left on cultural issues. And that was the worst possible combination in terms of uh, regaining the affections of working class voters. And that's what brought us Trump. And interestingly, we're going to see a very good test of my hypothesis uh, this fall, because in two of the key industrial states, Pennsylvania, uh, assuming uh, John Fetterman recovers from his stroke, and it looks like he will, and uh, Ohio, uh, you're going to see a fake populist up against a real populist. Tim Ryan, the Democratic nominee, is a real pocketbook populist in the mode of Sherrod Brown, who's the only Democrat who keeps getting elected statewide in Ohio. And uh, he is up against the ultimate faux populist, uh, the hillbilly who became a hedge fund executive, um, J.D. Vance. Uh, and in neighboring Pennsylvania, you're going to have Fetterman uh, uh, up against one of two uh, fake populists, uh, either either um, Mehmet Oz or Kathy Barnett. And you also have Trump meddling in all these primaries, which has the virtue of splitting the Republican base. I mean, it was one thing when all of the contradictions in, in Republican fake populism got uh, packaged in Donald Trump. But uh, with Trump not on the ballot, you find that coalition splintering. And I think the other point I'd make, and I'd be interested to hear what you think of this, is that um, I have a piece actually on the Prospect website on this today. Um, the, the leaked draft opinion by Justice Alito in Roe v. Wade uh, overturning Roe uh, had the uh, boomerang effect of embarrassing Republicans and Republicans have frantically been backing and filling and trying to exercise damage control by suddenly posing as kind and gentle towards women. And so uh, the National Republican Senate Campaign Committee put out talking points saying, oh, no, we're not in favor of punishing doctors, and we're certainly not in favor of uh, prosecuting women as murderers. And, of course, at the state level, all of the ultra-zealots are making liars of them. And so even though you have the National Right to right to Life Committee, you have other groups posturing moderate, uh, this exposes the fact that Republicans espouse positions that most Americans don't support with all kinds of public health fallouts. If you are a doctor and you're trying to treat a woman who's had a miscarriage, 
your first loyalty is supposed to be to the state. You're supposed to be an agent of the police state and verify that the miscarriage wasn't really a, a disguised abortion. And uh, as you look at all of the ramifications of the of the uh, overturning of Roe, it reminds Americans that most Americans don't agree with what most Republicans espouse. And by the way, the same story with the white supremacist violence, uh, the murders. Most Americans don't back this stuff. And yet too many Republicans have been on Fox with a wink and a nod, uh, espousing this kind of extremism and uh, energizing the, the kind of ultra far right, uh, Jews will not replace us, blacks will not replace us, road to fascism. And I think it does create an opening for progressive Democrats. If Democrats have the courage of their convictions and can speak in a louder voice and remind ordinary Americans that most people do not support this stuff, and most Republicans do. Who would you say is, uh, the, who are our best voices to, um, to get before the public a distinction between faux populists, as you call them, and real populists? Well, I think someone like John Fetterman, you know, who's six foot nine, and I'm just imagining uh, Fetterman as the Democratic nominee in 2024, uh, towering over Trump and ridiculing Trump's efforts uh, at, at posing as a populist, even as he uh, carries out a corporate agenda and uses racism as his version of, of populism. Biden does it reasonably well, but he does it too softly. He comes yeah. across as mild. He needs to come across as uh, tougher and more indignant and more outraged at this stuff. And, you know, my book is, is called Going Big, and it credits Biden for all the good things that he, he's done. My first choice was not Biden. My first choice would have been uh, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, but Biden is who we have. And I think Democrats who are a little annoyed that, okay, we worked hard to get this guy elected and we worked hard to get 50 Democrats uh, elected to the Senate and to get a narrow majority in the House. I, I think Democrats tend to blame Biden for the fact that all 50 Republicans in the Senate, plus Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, don't support his program. And we don't have the luxury of defeatism. We don't have the luxury of despair. The, the stakes are just, just too high. My opening lines in my book read, Joe Biden's presidency will either be a historic pivot back to New Deal economics and forward to energize democracy or a heartbreaking interregnum between two bouts of deepening American fascism. And those words are even truer now than when I wrote them. And they're truer now than when the book went to press. So we don't have the luxury of being despondent. We have to appreciate the stakes and uh, we have to be our own spokespeople. We have to go out and organize our neighbors and organize ourselves and uh, not feel that, well, okay, I wanted a pony. I didn't get a pony and I didn't get everything that I hoped I'd get out of Joe Biden. The stakes are just too high. Right. So what you're saying is not only should Joe Biden or has he 
kind of gone big. FDR, you know, is his his model and New Deal. That was big. But you're saying that Democrats on the ground, grass, grassroots, we've got to go big. Yeah. And I think Republicans happily are giving us some ammunition. Uh, the 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 um, the the leak draft uh, overturning uh, Roe v. Wade, the violence that's uh, being uh, wrought against women, the violence against African Americans. Most most Americans do not support this stuff. And um, if you look beyond the the uh, image of a failed presidency who can't get his stuff through, who can't get you know Biden can't get his stuff through Congress, the particular elements of his program are, are, are very, very popular. And so Biden, I think, needs to discover his inner Harry Truman, as well as his inner FDR. Truman in 1948, when everybody said he was a sure loser, uh, sent Congress progressive legislation that he knew Republicans would vote against. And then he went on the campaign trail to point out how Republicans were not acting in the interest of regular people. He liked to say, don't vote for me, vote for yourselves. And Truman, of course, uh, turned that around and he won. And um, Obama is another sad part of this story in that history really handed him on a platter uh, the disgrace of Republicans, the disgrace of neoliberalism. And instead of taking that and running with it, he appointed a Wall Street team as his top economic advisors, and he temporized. And um, in the book, I quote a Roosevelt line from the Democratic Convention of 1936, where Roosevelt is accepting his party's nomination for the second time. And he says of bankers, they hate me and I welcome their hatred. And I compare that with a line of Barack Obama's in 2009, when he is speaking to a group of bankers and imploring them to support his two-week financial reform program. And he says, my administration is the only thing standing between you and the pitchforks. And my comment is Obama needed to be with the pitchforks. And by not being with the pitchforks, he ceded that territory to the Tea Parties, to Donald Trump, And uh, instead of the Democrats being the agent of popular exasperation, uh, Democrats became the target. So good on Biden for getting some of that back. And we really need to double down on this kind of progressive populism. And we're going to get a test of this in Ohio, in Pennsylvania. And we'll we'll see whether I'm right. We'll see how Fetterman and and Ryan do uh, against fake populists. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Um, You know, I'd like to go back to FDR and the New Deal, uh, which you uh, describe in wonderful detail in the book. And uh, to compare it, what was different? I mean, that was a success, you know, uh, 1932, quarter of workers were jobless, another quarter were underemployed. And so the circumstances were different um, between uh, FDR's New Deal and Build Back Better. But I'd love for you to give us a picture of uh, what were the circumstances there? How are they the same or different now? It's a great question. So as as you indicate, uh, the uh, 
the Great Depression was the most severe catastrophe in the history of the country. And there were people who wanted to give Roosevelt dictatorial powers. Uh, it was also the case that we'd had three years of deepening depression before Roosevelt took office. And so all of that bad stuff happened on Herbert Hoover's watch. So that's point one. Uh, Roosevelt did not really start out as radical as he became. He became more radical in office when he realized how bad things were. And he started out wanting to balance the budget. And um, Roosevelt was a great experimenter and he was willing to uh, go big and, uh, you know, his famous first hundred days and uh, willing to uh, close all the banks uh, in order to see which ones were sound. Uh, he enacted legislation that compelled commercial banking to be separate from investment banking and all of these amazing public works programs, Social Security, the Wagner Act, uh, regulating finance in a way that finance had never been regulated before. And even though uh, unemployment was still pretty high in 1934, in that midterm election, Roosevelt broke the midterm jinx. You know, normally the pattern is that a president's party uh, two years into his first term loses seats. Well, in 1934, uh, the Democrats pick up nine seats in the House and they pick up nine seats in the Senate. And of course, that's the other big difference. Roosevelt had a huge working majority of almost three to one in both houses. The other difference is Roosevelt put off coming to a reckoning with race. Roosevelt disgracefully depended on the support of white supremacist senators and congressmen who in those years controlled key congressional committees. And in order to get uh, any of his New Deal program through those committees, uh, he had to agree to terms whereby it was basically a new deal for white people. Uh, African-Americans, for the most part, were excluded from the protections of the Wagner Act. Occupations where most African-Americans worked, farm labor, domestic labor, were not covered by the Wagner Act. Same story with Social Security. And he had to go along with segregated public housing. In fact, uh, there were areas of the North that had been integrated that became segregated because of the terms of the public housing programs that Roosevelt uh, had to agree to. And it, it really, uh, really fell to Truman to begin the process and then Lyndon Johnson to uh, go further with the process of making the Democrats the party of racial justice and the Republicans then become the party of white supremacy. And this is very tricky for Joe Biden because at a time when white working class people are feeling very aggrieved and take the bait of Donald Trump that instead of seeing that the problem is corporate dominance of the economy, uh, they're too inclined to sca scapegoat African-Americans and immigrants. And um, Biden, on the one hand, has been terrific at appointing the most uh, diverse set of appointees ever. Uh, I think African-Americans know that he's their friend. But on the other hand, he has to be very careful to not associate himself with some of the more radical demands of uh, uh, the movement for black lives so that he doesn't give aid and comfort and ammunition uh, to the Republicans. And I think he's walked that tightrope rather well. It's a tightrope that FDR just avoided. He just went along with white supremacy 
to his everlasting uh, shame because he realized that if he did not do that, he would never get the New Deal enacted. And um, I think given the depth of the Depression and given um, the working majority that Roosevelt did have in Congress on all the economic issues, it was easier for him to succeed than it is for Biden to succeed. I mean, no president has ever attempted such a far-reaching progressive program with such a, a, a weak uh, working majority. And I just have to believe that even though uh, if you follow the usual rules of American political history, the Democrats are in line for a wipeout this fall, I have to believe that that is not foreordained. That Trump being out there reminding everybody what a lunatic he is and the leaked draft of the overturning of Roe v. Wade and all of the uh, gun violence uh, and the fact that Democrats are beginning to appreciate what the stakes are, I do not think we are doomed to see a Democratic wipeout in the fall. Uh, and you're starting to see the kind of organizing that we saw in 2018. And just one more word on that. This election will turn on whether 2022 is like 2018. In 2018, uh, after Trump is elected and takes office in 2017, that electoral cycle begins with the great women's marches. And then you have Indivisible and all the other grassroots groups that spring up like mushrooms. And damned if the Democrats didn't take back 41 Republican House seats. And the reason that happened was that turnout increased over the last midterm election of, of, of 2014, more than it had ever increased in the history of the Republic between two midterm elections, and that benefited Democrats. And so you hope that as Democrats who are disappointed that not all of Biden's program got enacted, as Democrats realize the stakes this spring and summer, you're going to have the kind of grassroots activism that we had, and you're going to have the kind of turnout that we had in 2018. There are very few swing voters, but there are lots of swing districts. And which way the districts swing depends entirely on turnout. Young people and African-Americans and other people who are not inclined to vote because they're cynical about the whole system, realizing what the stakes are. Women, I think, now with the repeal uh, of uh, or the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the Alito draft, you're going to see a huge upsurge of women and not just women. Right. You know, I hope you are right. My fear, <laughs> My fear is that the right is more mobilized than the left at the moment and that we're faced with several important challenges. One is that, as your book shows, there's um, not a clear picture of social class and what we need to do about the class gap. That, in a way, on the right, people are saying, oh, you know, if you work hard, you'll uh, make it um, and it'll be to your credit, individualism, right? Is erasing a picture of social class in that way. But the left, uh, according to the right, is sort of disappeared into identity politics. And it's kind of lost 
the focus that your book puts us back onto of social class. So what can we do to clarify the importance of that and um, have that be a motivating factor in mobilizing the left? Well, you lead with it and you keep talking about it day in and day out. And some of these social issues don't loom so large. And uh, Elizabeth Warren likes to say the rules are rigged. And even though Republicans talk about you, you just need to work hard, you can make it. And even though J.D. Vance talks about, you know, you can become a hedge fund executive just like me if you don't get stoned all the time. um, The rules are rigged and uh, you keep the spotlight on the pocketbook issues. You keep reminding voters that even though Republicans talk a populist game, they're really in bed with the corporations. And if you keep the spotlight on that, some of these identity issues don't loom so large. And you don't have to give up on civil rights, by the way, to do that. Yes. But, but yeah. on the contrary, by identifying the pocketbook issues, you remind people of the commonalities that white voters and black voters and Hispanic voters have and that the enemy is not each other. The enemy is these corporate plutocrats. And by keeping the focus on that, you stand a chance of winning back these voters. And, you know, I had a, 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 a famous uh, set to with, with uh, Steve Bannon, uh, where uh, I helped get him fired from the White House. And in that interview, he kept saying, I want the Democrats to talk about identity every day of the week. And if that's what they talk about, you know, we can beat them. And um, no, if <laughs> Democrats ought to be talking about social class, the, the fact that, as, as, as Warren Buffett once said, uh, there is a class struggle in this country and my class is winning. And if Warren Buffett can admit that, Democrats ought to be shouting it from the housetops. And yeah. if, we can, if we can keep our eye on that ball, we can win back some of these folks who when, when when we force them to take a look at who the Republicans are really in bed with, um, they'll realize that Republicans are, are not on their side at all. Yeah, yeah. Actually, social class is an identity, of course. <laughs> um, so who are the, how to get this message out? I mean, the message that you have just articulated um, you know, that the right is using race uh, to divide uh, people from knowledge of their own uh, uh, interests and uh, knowledge of class division. Who are the best people to get that message out? And what could it, what could people do to get that message out? <laughs> well, they can start out by buying my book. Uh, It's interesting. I mean, Biden has been talking more like a partisan lately. Uh, He's talked about MAGA Republicans and the fact that most people in America don't support MAGA Republicans. And uh, he could be doing an even stronger job, but I think he's moving in the right direction. And uh, I think in congressional campaigns, ordinary Democratic candidates for Congress, um, need to put Republicans on the defensive about whether 
they agree with Trump that the 2020 election was stolen? And do they condone the attempted January 6th coup d'etat? And do they support all of this corporate concentration and all of these tax breaks for billionaires? Uh, or do they want to help ordinary people? And I think this can be done at the retail level. It, it, you know, politics is retail. And we're going to see this in every congressional race. And Trump is playing a very useful role here because in, in, in campaign after campaign after campaign, he's backing the craziest person he can find that then throws a grenade into local Republican politics. Uh, you can go state by state by state uh, and he's backing losers. He's backing people who have as checkered a resume as he has uh, against Republicans who can fudge uh, the fact that they're in bed with uh, corporations. And he's uh, very usefully helping to demolish his own party. And I think that gives the Democrats an opening to talk about the real issues, the pocketbook issues, the effect on women's health of uh, repealing Roe. And uh, I think I think if Democrats play to strength, uh, they have a fighting chance. So I'm looking less at national spokespeople and more for Democrats in every single race uh, to embrace this kind of uh, narrative. Yeah. OK. Um, and um, so what do we do about the rising price of gas and diapers? And that's a pocketbook issue uh, that is being blamed on uh, on Biden. You know, you have to explain where it really came from. Biden's done a pretty good job of this. I mean, the, the, the whole supply chain mess was the result of so-called just-in-time production meets globalization. And the wise guys at the business schools and some of the corporate moguls in the late 1970s came up with the idea that um, we can go offshore and uh, get cheaper labor, really undercut blue-collar American workers, buy this stuff in China, ship it halfway around the world, and uh, have low inventories, and the stuff will miraculously appear just when we need it. And uh, this will be more efficient. Now, what they left out of the calculation was the risk of a kind of disruption. And you had a perfect storm this time where COVID uh, meets China deciding that its strategy for dealing with the virus was lockdowns meets the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, now there, I explained that in about 12 seconds. And that was the primary cause of the inflation. The problem, of course, is that people want simple uh, explanations and Republicans are demagoguing this. And then you've got very unhelpful people like Larry Summers saying that this was a result of overstimulation of the economy in the, in the uh, Spring uh, Recovery Act, uh, the $1.9 trillion uh, uh, Recovery Act that, that Biden uh, got through Congress. For the most part, this was not the result of excess economic stimulus. It was the result of the, the, the supply chain mess compounded by corporate profiteering. You read about this every day of the week where... The airlines, for example, uh, have have used the the fact of scarcity to jack up fares by 40 percent instead mm -hmm. of uh, adding seat capacity. Uh, the meat 
packing companies have have uh, raised their prices far beyond what they're paying ranchers. Uh, mm. You have the fact that there's a duopoly of baby formula companies, the result of the antitrust police sleeping on the switch so that when one big factory turns out to be contaminated, uh, there's no extra supply in the supply chain and you have a shortage of baby formula. So this is the result of uh, too much corporate power combined with uh, a random event, COVID, uh, uh, combined with uh, the Republican, uh, the, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. And it's hard to explain to people, but um, the worst thing that could happen would be for the Fed to slam on the brakes and try to deal with inflation, which has idiosyncratic causes by putting the whole economy into a, into a depression. And uh, the, the Fed believes that by this summer and early fall, some of these supply chain problems are going to work themselves out. Biden has been doing heroically at uh, cleaning up the supply chain problems at the ports and the railroads and the trucking companies. And you're gradually going to see this start to subside. He's gone after the, uh, the oil companies and the profiteering by the oil companies. But it's a hard sell. And, you know, politics is very unfair. This is something that broke out on his watch that was the result of neoliberal policies that had been put into effect before he ever took office. Right. You know, I have uh, two questions I want to ask you. We just have five minutes before we uh, open it out to uh, questions from the audience. And by the way, audience, uh, put any questions that you have into the chat box. Um, but one follows from just from what you've said that Biden's policies have been great, but his personality is is uh, he's not a salesman, and uh, I think that's a problem. If you were to put uh, our best salesman out out there uh, to, in a way, get the point of your book and what can be done. Uh, to turn this engine in the right direction, um, who would you put out there? Who who would be, if you, suppose in state after state after state, um, people were reminded of, of the Build Back Better uh, and the Recovery Act and the kind of um, benefits to average Americans of these. Um, who who would you put out there? Who what could we do? We we have this bizarre situation where Joe Biden was not supposed to win the nomination. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren basically cancel each other out. If only one of them had been in the primaries, uh, he or she would have been the nominee. And so when Biden became the front runner after after winning the South Carolina primary, and there was a bandwagon effect. Uh, Warren very astutely uh, traded loyalty for influence. She became very loyal to Biden, and she had enormous influence on his policies. And so you have this anomaly of, of the soul of Elizabeth Warren in the persona of Joe Biden, who, yeah. is, a, who is a milder <laughs> yeah. figure, yeah. who is sort of, you know, just plain Joe, 
and he needs to sound a little bit more like Elizabeth Warren. So I would put Warren out there, but I would, I would, uh, you know, inject War- uh, Biden with steroids. Uh, Biden is the president, and there's only one president at a time, and he needs to learn how to become more forceful. I hope people like uh, John Fetterman and Tim Ryan will will be on the national news and not just on the news in Pennsylvania and Ohio and demonstrate what a populist sounds like. But Biden is still capable of doing that, and he just needs to do it better. Now, the interesting thing is that Biden is not on the ballot this fall. Uh, you've got uh, you know 435 members of Congress and 33 uh, Senate seats on the ballot. And Trump, for all intents and purposes, is on the ballot because he's everywhere and his surrogates are everywhere and his meddling is everywhere. And so you have this nice situation where all the negative aspects of Trump are on the ballot and Biden isn't. And so uh, I'd like to see Biden become more forceful. And uh, I'm walking a tightrope, too, because on the one hand, I'm, I'm praising him for some of the policies that he's implemented and for some of his appointments. And I'm also pushing him to become a a more effective populist. Yeah, good. Um, And one, uh, uh, one last question I wanted to ask you in the book, you talk about the race class narrative. Uh, Would you explain what that is and how actually people have put those two things together effectively to well let me plug another book i mean that's that's heather mcgee's book it's called the sum of us s-u-m sum and she talks about all the commonalities that uh blacks and whites and hispanics and other uh, groups have and she uh thanks to a lot of research that a lot of other people have contributed to has fashioned a narrative that allows you to talk about both class and race in a way that stresses commonalities and demonstrates that by stressing those commonalities, um, you gain more traction with both white people and black people than if you talk about just class or just race. So that's a book that I, that I highly recommend. Now, uh, one, okay, we're turning to uh, questions from the audience. And uh, one is, uh, as someone who covers politics, what concerns you the most in comparison to other years? I think Republicans are just further out on the spectrum uh, of fascism. And, uh, you know, you, you look at the white supremacist narrative, um, that these, uh, killers have embraced and you look at the Republican refusal to object to the attempted coup d'etat of, uh, January 6th, 2020, uh, Republicans are crazier than they've ever been and they're not paying the political price. And yeah. you can count on the fingers of one hand, Republicans who've distanced themselves from Trumpism. And I think Democrats should be taking advantage of that because as I said, most people do not support the idea of overturning an election by a coup d'etat. 
they do not support uh, repealing Roe v. Wade. They do not support mass killings. And that stuff needs to be hung around the necks of Republicans. So I think um, this election is more alarming because the Republicans keep getting crazier and crazier and more comfortable with what can only be called neo-fascism. And for a lot of people, it's like, oh, well, this is just another election and uh, the Democrats haven't done well with the economy and I'm going to vote for a Republican. And people just have to be reminded of what the stakes are. Yeah, great. Um, Now, another question uh, from the audience. Um, Heading into the midterms, how, uh, what should be done to fight misinformation? Well, I just think you have to call out lies. And, uh, uh, you know, the old saying is uh, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. And that's doubly true in the age of social media. But um, I think you just need to call out people on their lies. And if you have effective candidates, effective candidates know how to do that. Okay, here's another uh, question. Someone asked, what do you, uh, maybe you've answered this, but you could elaborate. What do you view to be the greatest threat to democracy today? The fact that one of our two major political parties does not believe in democracy at all and is willing to see an election overthrown and is willing to see all kinds of voter suppression measures. And even worse, you have the corporate elite, which gets what it wants from Donald Trump, even though the corporate elite finds Trump a little bit distasteful, and they're totally willing to get in bed with him. They're willing to sacrifice democracy too, as long as they get what they want for their bottom line. And, uh, Then, of course, you have the Supreme Court and the other courts that are willing to uphold a lot of these voter suppression measures. And this is going to be one of these elections that tests whether mobilization can overcome suppression. And, you know, you have Stacey Abrams, uh, the the great uh, uh, creative figure for the last 10 years, Uh, in mobilizing voters, running for governor again in Georgia, a state where miraculously uh, we elected two progressive Democratic senators last time, one African-American, one Jewish. And uh, you have Trump very usefully uh, campaigning against the incumbent, uh, Kemp, because Kemp was not willing to, uh, you know, turn around, uh, fake the election results last time. So Trump is doing useful damage. Stacey Abrams is uh, performing her usual miracles of organizing and voter suppression only goes so far. The other piece of good news, and I'm sorry to keep stressing good news, but I really, I really want to keep hope alive. Uh, The other piece of good news is that in more than half of the states, we still have fair elections. We don't have voter suppression. And I counted uh, about 25 Republicans incumbents who won by less than 10 points last time in states that still have fair elections. So those seats are contestable. So, you know, one can make a litany of all of the threats to democracy and just talk oneself into uh, despair, but one can also point opportunities for, for saving democracy. And 
if we don't save democracy in uh, 2022 and 2024, I think it's probably gone forever. So that's why this is such a momentous couple of years, couple of elections. Um, what, um, one thing the polls said about Republican opinion on January 6th is that some two thirds of Republicans say, look, now that was wrong to um, uh, uh, break the law and enter. But the people that came to Washington, they had a point and, you know, you have to, uh, they were unhappy. They didn't feel uh, uh, represented. So um, in answer to that two thirds, um, what about this? I'd like your response to this. What if you said uh, to those two thirds of Republicans who say, look, we don't feel, we feel disenchanted, disenfranchised. We don't feel listened to. In fact, something has been stolen. And you can say, yes, something has been stolen. It wasn't the election, <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, say so. Uh, and it's uh, the mom and pop stores have been stolen. And um, the rules that would have uh, favored the working families, those have been stolen. You kind of um, move into the storm <laughs> and through a jujitsu kind of say, you know, I get your feelings. You're feeling the right thing, but you're giving that uh, the wrong explanation. So rather than saying you're crazy to think it was stolen, no, it wasn't stolen, to take stealing as a metaphor for a feeling that people have that progressives have too. And this is actually a come together on stolen <laughs> in, in some way. Uh, I'd love your uh, thoughts on that. Harley, I, I, I totally agree with that. And um, I think there's a rhetoric, a narrative. Your future has been stolen from you uh, yes. by the corporate domination of everything and the for-profit takeover everything. I wanted Biden, the book is called Go Big. I wanted Biden to go big on debt relief uh, for students, former students. And if you look at uh, the kind of kids who go deeply into debt, uh, it's mostly kids who don't have rich parents to pay tuition. It's upwardly mobile strivers from the working class and the middle class whose parents can't just write a check and their futures are being stolen from them by being saddled with debt before their economic lives even begin. And you can talk about all kinds of things that are stolen from ordinary people, and you can validate the feelings and redirect away from the claim that uh, the election was stolen to the fact that their economic futures are being stolen. So you and I should run for Congress, I think. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, there's another question. Um, what are your thoughts on court packing? Well, 
Uh, court packing was a term used by Roosevelt's enemies when Roosevelt uh, was proposing to expand the Supreme Court uh, after the 1936 election when the Supreme Court was overturning uh, one uh, New Deal piece of legislation after another. And uh, that proposal never even even made it into legislation because uh, Democrats ran away from it. So um, court packing is a kind of negative term for the idea that the Supreme Court has not always been comprised of nine people. We could add people. I think politically it's a, it's a non-starter. Uh, I just think we're going to have to wait for some of these bastards to die off and uh, keep progressives in the majority in the Senate long enough to start appointing progressive judges. So I don't I don't think it has a future. That's just a, a kind of a candid uh, political assessment. Yeah. OK. You know, I feel like sort of going back to the last paragraph of your book where you tell us uh that it's um, it's a danger to be wishful. Uh, we shouldn't be wishful, but we should be hopeful. Uh, could you say a little more on that? You know, um, if you if you don't embrace the usual cliches about the Democrats are headed for a historic wipeout, they're going to lose fifty or sixty seats in the House and probably going to lose the Senate as well. And Republicans are going to be geared up for taking back the White House in 2024. It's very easy to tell that story. But I have to believe that that's not foreordained. And whether that comes to pass depends on us. Now, I don't think that's wishful. Uh, I think history is just full of contingencies. Who would have thought that this draft of uh, Alito's uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade would be leaked? And it would backfire on Republicans. And um, so I think uh, you have to keep hope alive. There's a line, a famous line of uh, Antonio Gramsci, where uh, when he was in prison, imprisoned by Mussolini, he was an Italian Marxist. He talked about pessimism of the mind and optimism of the will. I don't like the word will. It has a kind of 20s and 30s flavor. So I like to translate that as pessimism of the mind, optimism of the heart, meaning you have to be a pessimist based on what you know, but you have to be an optimist based on the stakes and based on uh, what we need to bring about. And uh, despair is just not an option. And I think if we can just psych ourselves up to realize what's at stake, go out and organize ourselves, go out and organize our neighbors, not be disappointed that Biden didn't uh, achieve everything we hoped he would achieve, but uh, realizing that the future of democracy is at stake and that if we can hold on to our democracy, then we have another shot at getting our new deal back and realizing that the two things go together and that the way you save your democracy is by putting forward the kind of economic populism that Roosevelt represented, but this time a multiracial populism, uh, then we can head off uh, the worst. And so um, I don't think that's wishful. I mean, if you look at if you look at the early 1930s in Germany, and I choose my example deliberately because I really think we are close to neo-fascism, uh, there were so many times in the early 1930s when Hitler was not inevitable. 
and yet opportunities for heading off uh, the Nazis, becoming the largest party in the in the Reichstag, were, were missed. And we have to learn from history and not make those mistakes again. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of um, a comment on uh, climate change where people are thinking so despairing, so big, what can I do? And one uh, woman asked, well, what can I do as an individual against climate change? And the answer came, don't be an individual, (laughs) join a group. (laughs) Exactly. You, You can join a group and you can make sure that Democrats don't lose their majority because if the Republicans take the majority, then, you know, climate change is only going to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Well, we're coming uh, to the um, end of our opportunity to hear from you. I just want to say this is really, you you are, <laughs> and if you think you're a progressive and you already know things, you don't. Read this book because it really does uh make me personally realize how much of the sort of the right-wing version of, of, of history has, has soaked in, even to us. So uh, this, this book is really um, hopeful and not wishful in, in, a, in a wonderful way. So we've now reached the point in our program where um, we have to come to an end. So our thanks to Bob Kuttner, at the author of uh, uh, Going Big, FDR's Legacy, Biden's New Deal, and the Struggle to Save uh, Democracy. So please pick up your copy of his new book at your local uh, bookstore. And if you would like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's effort to make both virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm Arlie Hochschild, and thank you for joining us. Take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 